sin. Well, let me invite you to take your Bible this morning to the book of Ephesians. We're uh, continuing our exposition through this uh, wonderful book, and uh, we had just a little pause last week. We had Brother Harold preach for us, and that was a, a special blessing, and and uh, and so we're thankful for that. But I'm looking forward to uh, digging back into uh, where we are here now in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to begin at this next section here in verse 3. We'll come down through verse number 6, and uh, really, the, the context of all this flows down through verse 14, uh, but as usual, I started saying, you know, I'm going to cover all of this, and uh, I get into preparing it and uh, realize that we have food today, and y'all are hungry, and, and um, I don't want to be in trouble, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I'm not careful, I'll get long-winded uh, with too much text to cover, but I want to, I want to accurately and uh, uh, sufficiently cover what Scripture is speaking to us. And uh, so we're going to look at verse 3 through verse 6, and it will tie in next week to the latter part of that, this section, verse 7 through verse 14. But the message this morning is primarily Paul's words and giving a warning against walking in darkness. A warning against walking in darkness. Now we know that this latter half of Ephesians is very much about application, about the Christian life, about how we're to live, our manner and our lifestyle and And so last week we looked at uh, the importance of walking in love there in verse 1 and 2. That is what what Paul ushers to them. Be imitators of God. Uh, Walk in love. And he gives the example of Christ, so that Christ in love gave himself as a sacrifice. And it was a sweet-smelling offering unto God. But now he continues in this text and brings us to the the picture or or, uh, metaphor of walking in light. And that's what we'll look at focus next week, but to start, he gives us warning against walking in darkness. And so let's read in verse five in the verse, chapter 5, verse 3 through 6. Notice that he says to them, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Who has ever been scared of the dark? Anybody? Maybe at, at your childhood, maybe that was a fear. And there, I've known some adults that are still scared of the dark, and if you are, that's okay. But most children, you know, they've been afraid of the dark at some point in their life, and especially if they're by themselves. And there's a well-known tool to help kids at nighttime with a dark room, and it's called a nightlight. That's deep stuff, isn't it? A nightlight. Just the other night, I was putting the kids to bed, turned the lights off, shut the door, and immediately said, Dad, the nightlight isn't on. That was a big thing for them. They had taken it out of the wall because they like to use it like a flashlight and play with it and such of that nature. But uh, once there was no nightlight and they were shut in this dark room, they're uh, a little skeptical of that. Now, they're not terrified of the dark, but they're not real comfortable staying in the dark without any light for too long. Why is the concept of darkness somewhat scary? Well, because dark, in darkness you can't 
see is essentially what it boils down to. You can't see clearly. And, and when you can't see, it makes you uncomfortable. You begin to think of what dangers might be lurking in the dark. Or uh, you might injure yourself walking in the dark, not being able to see where you're going. Now, darkness may provoke fear for some physically, but spiritual darkness must be feared. Spiritual darkness should be all the more feared. And why is that? Because spiritual darkness is blindness in a person's heart that causes them to live in such a way that leads them to their own destruction. They're heading down a path that they don't even realize they're heading down to an end they have no clue that they're actually going to end up in. Why do they not recognize this destructive path? Well, because they can't spiritually see the truth of who they are, what they are doing, and where they are going. But the opposite is true for the Christian. This is where Paul continues his call to the Christians here and brings them to this, uh, this, this subject of walking in the light, which is what the whole passage deals with. Paul uses light in a very figurative sense, in a way that speaks of truly living out the Christian life according to the truth of God's word. Because the Christian has been delivered from darkness and are now the children of light. And as children of light, the Christian sees clearly what dangers there are in both their nature and in the world around them, and ultimately what all of this sinful darkness leads unto. You see, the Christian is to recognize the works of darkness and resolve in their own heart not to live in such a way because they are no longer in darkness. They see clearly. They know better than they used to know. Now, Paul brings this to our attention about the works of darkness, about warning of walking in darkness. And, and I've broken this down in just to two headings today that I, that I pray would, would, would challenge us and make us aware of, of what are these, 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 this darkness that we are to avoid and not to walk in, not to live in. Notice with me, number one, the sinful works of darkness. That's the, the first couple verses focus on this. The sinful works of darkness. And Paul breaks this down in two very specific ways. Paul warns against sins concerning sexual activity. Sexual activity. You say, well, that sounds a little bit PG-13. Well, Scripture's full of that. I'm just going to preach the text and you take it or leave it. Now, we could easily conclude that all forms of sin are indeed works of darkness, right? They should be avoided. But here, Paul, he hones in on some very specific sins. Sins that were prominent in Ephesus, and they are also prominent today in America. Very prominent. Notice what he says in verse 3. But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Now, these, these sins listed encompass much of what the godless culture around us today is pushing. They are pushing these particular sins upon the culture. And there are many who profess Christ who engage in such sins. What are these sins? Well, notice that Paul mentions, firstly, sexual immorality. 
sexual immorality. What does that refer to? The word for sexual immorality is the Greek term pornea. It's also translated as fornication. Uh, it's, It's from this word that we get our English word, pornography. Pornea, pornography, you can see how that is connected, where that word comes from. But it refers specifically to unlawful sexual intercourse. But it goes deeper than just that. Another Greek lexicon defines it in this way, to engage in sexual immorality of any kind, often with the implication of prostitution. Now, this was a major deal in Ephesus and some of those cities of Asia Minor was prostitution. It was prominent in that day. Some of the great pagan temples in that day, they were staffed with hundreds of priestesses who were religious prostitutes. And their service was to enable men to offer depraved sexual worship to false gods. Sexual sin was rampant in that day and in that culture in Ephesus, and it would have been a great temptation for those living in that day, especially if there were Christians in the church who had formerly been partakers of such sins. But beyond prostitution, understand this, there is the sin, this, there is this sin, and there's all different kinds of forms of sexual immorality. This would include homosexuality, that is a sexual sin, adultery, Any form of unlawful sexual action. Now, what does the Bible describe to us? When is sex lawful? When is it lawful? When is it good? When is it permitted? Friend, sex and any other form of sexual activity is only lawful within the covenant of marriage, and watch this, between one man and one woman. So when two men get married... They're disqualified because that's an abomination in itself. Sex is only lawful between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. The the Hebrew writer put it this way, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, I want us to understand this biblically. That sex is a beautiful gift from God. Sex isn't sinful, but it can be sinful within, with, outside of God's boundaries. You see, within the bond of marriage, it is a wonderful expression between, of, between, of love between a man and a woman. And watch this, it glorifies God in that manner. It glorifies God in that manner. But what has happened with the gift of sex in our world and in our culture? Satan and depraved sinners have perverted it into many forms of sinfulness that grieve God. Because that's what Satan does. He takes what God ordained for good and he wants to pervert it into evil. That's how he works. So when we think of homosexuality, adultery, sex between unmarried uh, couples, I'm going to throw this in there too because it's more prominent today, pornography. Pornography. As we look at the culture around us, nearly everything is sexualized. Why is that? Because sex sells. Sex is powerful. 
It grips the heart. It grips the mind. When you look at what we see in our culture, the LGBTQA and whatever other alphabet letter they want to add to that, that is a movement of sexual perversion. That is what it is. It is a movement of sexual perversion. When you look at the abortion movement, did you know that that is a movement of sexual perversion? Do you know why so many women fight for abortion and say, it's my right to have an abortion? Because they want the liberty to have sex with whoever they feel like, and if they happen to get pregnant, they can take care of it. Abortion is about sex. And it enables a further sin of murder. It's evil. Hollywood and pop culture promote sexual perversion. Anybody watch the Super Bowl? Halftime show? Anybody watch the... Uh, the Grammys as of late. If you don't, if you, I didn't, I didn't watch it. I don't watch that junk. Nothing wrong with football game, but the halftime show can go jump in a lake. All right. As you look at Hollywood and pop culture, they literally worship Satan. I'm, I'm not, I'm not just speaking figuratively. They literally worship Satan. And part and central to worship of Satan is sexual indulgence. That is absolutely key to Satanism. So, so Hollywood and pop culture, they, they promote the sexual inver- perversion. And another one, understand this, pornography is one of the world's largest interest, industries bringing in billions of dollars in our nation alone you would probably be shocked how pervasive pornography is even in the church. It's not something that's just out there and the wicked are doing it. It's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. The culture seeks to implant this perversion into our hearts and minds, especially in our youth. What we see in our culture is, well, let's just rename it. Let's rebrand sin to normalize it for the culture. And guess what, church? Their agenda is succeeding. You know why that is? There is not enough warning and instruction from parents or the pulpit on this matter. You can't just leave your teenagers to go off and do whatever they want and think, oh, they're just going to be a good little Christian. I was a teenager once. I know how that works. Sexual sin is pervasive and often hidden where you can't even see it. You may think everything's fine, but you understand that this is a pervasive issue and it needs to be addressed. It must change. There are too many, even among professing Christians in the church, who see nothing wrong with being sexually active before marriage or living together for that matter. You come to that that subject and it's like, oh, we'll just avoid that. That's not that big a deal. Often the, the way out of that is say, well, I just love this person. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad you love them. But love is not license for immorality. Love is not license for immorality. If you truly love them and they love you, get married and enjoy sex God's way. It's wonderful within the bonds of marriage. But it's detrimental outside of the bonds of marriage. Now, here's what I want to hone in. Our convictions on this issue as Christians must be grounded in the Word of God. Not what culture says. 
Not what everything around us says. It must be grounded in the Word of God. So if you are a Christian, I say, are you a true Christian? And you say, yes. What is the true Christian conviction about sexual immorality? If you say you're a Christian, but you don't hold that conviction, that's contradictory to what Scripture teaches about who you're supposed to be. Now, I want you to listen to why this sin is so important to avoid. In 1 Corinthians 15, go, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 15. Go with me to this text. I, I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. I want you to pay attention to what Paul says about this very issue. And bear in mind, this isn't just Paul's words. These are the God-breathed words from the Holy Spirit. This is the breath of God. This is your creator speaking. This is your redeemer speaking. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality, the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You notice that Paul says in verse 15 that the believer is a member of Christ. That means you're joined to him. You're inseparable from Christ. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. And verse 16, he warns that if you are joined in illicit sex with another person, you are becoming one with them in an ungodly manner. And this is why Paul says in verse 17, this is a command, flee. From sexual immorality. What's it mean to flee from something? It means run. <laughs> run. Don't sit there and meddle with it. Don't entertain it a little bit. It means run. Run. What's a gazelle do when a lion comes up on them? They just sit there and say, well, this lion, he might not do nothing to me. He's probably a nice lion. He runs for his life. Why does he do that? Because his life is at stake. And friend, here's the reality why this is, so, this is so important. Because when someone does such a thing, not only do they sin against God, but what's Paul say here? With sexual immorality, they sin against their own body. There's an entirely unique aspect to sexual immorality. Because sexual union has a spiritual component to it, sexual activity outside marriage is a unique sin both against Christ and one's own body. You see, when you commit such, you hurt yourself when you practice sexual immorality. You hurt yourself and the person you're with. Why is that? You can never get back what you once gave away sexually. You can't get it back. You see, God made you, Christian, and he indwells you. To glorify him with the gift of sex and to engage in it outside of the marriage covenant dishonors him. 
dishonors him. You say, oh, but it just makes me feel good. All sin feels good in the moment. All sin does. It's the reason we do it. But it's what comes afterward. You know, a fish really enjoys the live bait that he swallows, that he bites onto. Sees that live bait dangling in the water and, oh, yes, a meal, yummy, snatches his mouth on it. It's wonderful in that moment. But once he realizes he's hooked and can't escape, his life is at stake. You notice verse 19 and 20? Look at this. This is the chief reason. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Christian, your body don't belong to you. All this talk in abortion. My body, my choice. Guess what, Christian? The body belongs to Christ. It belongs to Christ. It belongs to Him. You understand there, there is never a moment when the Spirit of God is not indwelling God's child. Even when you're alone with your partner or your porn. Never a moment when the Spirit of God's not with you. Flee sexual immorality. These are the works of darkness. Notice what he connects this to. It's all interconnected, the same theme. In connection with sexual morality in Ephesians 3, or excuse me, 5, 5 and verse 3, notice what he says. He says, also all impurity. Now, all impurity should not be named among God's people. Now, in case you didn't get it with the first word, this one covers it all. Impurity, it refers to a state of moral corruption. This is any form of immorality, especially in the sexual sense. It refers to immoral thoughts, passions, ideas, fantasies, and every other form of sexual corruption. You see, this is more than just outward physical acts. This involves inward thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you remember what Jesus said regarding this? In his great sermon on the mount, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. That's a plain command. Everybody knows that. Don't do that. But he says, I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that the heart is what's important to God. The heart, because everything that we do outwardly really flows from our heart. And so if your heart is not settled with a conviction about sexual purity, you will not pursue sexual purity. It has to be important to you. And if that's important to you, you're going to look like a weirdo among everybody else. But that's okay. Especially our young people. Be the weirdo. Who cares what anybody thinks? Be the weirdo in the eyes of the world. The only thing that matters is what God thinks of you. It does not matter what your boyfriend says or, or who you like thinks about all of this. The only thing that matters is Christ. What he's done for you. What he's made you to be. You must have a conviction for sexual purity. Notice that Paul ties this to covetousness. Now, this, this may seem like an odd sin to place among sexual sins, but it's actually very fitting. What is covetousness? The Greek word could be translated as greediness. It, it refers to a state of desiring to have more than one's due. 
takes us back to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 17 says, You shall not covet, and it includes your neighbor's wife, your house, his servant, his, his animals. Don't covet. Now, coveting is obvious when it comes to greed towards material or money, right? That's the most prominent form we covet. But what does it have to do with sexual sin? Everything. You know why? Sexual sin is wanting what you're not allowed to have outside of God's will. You covet when you look at a woman with sexual thoughts because you're desiring what you're not allowed to have. When you engage in illicit sexual activity, you've gone from coveting to stealing what does not belong to you. What are you stealing when you do that? You are stealing glory from God in the gift that he gave to humanity. You see, sexual sin and covetousness, they are all about self, not about God. The pursuit of self-gratification, church, it is the, one, it is the most pervasive sin in our culture. Everybody wants what makes them happy, makes them feel good. I want what I want, and I want it now. That is our culture in a nutshell. They are covetous. And here's what Paul is saying about this. These sins listed here are darkness, and they are completely opposite of what the Christian character and conduct is to be. Notice what he says about them. He lists them and says that they must not even be named among you. Not even be named among you. Among who? Among the church. You see, within the church, these sins should be so avoided that no Christian in the congregation should have any ties or identification with these sexual sins. This doesn't mean that someone may never be tempted with them, but that they are to put off those fleshly passions. Paul put it this way to the Colossians. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, mortify, What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death these things. But church, I'm telling you, many Christians don't put these sins to death. And that's why I preach on it so strongly here this morning. Many Christians do not put these sins to death. And that tells me the culture around us is affecting the church instead of the opposite. It should be the opposite, as we'll look at later. Now, I'm not saying if you're a Christian and you have fallen into some of these sins that it's unforgivable. It is forgivable. It is. Kent Hughes rightly said, do Christians fall into these sins? Of course, but true Christians will not persist in them, for persistence in sensuality is a graceless state. Friend, if you've fallen into this sin, repent of it and turn back to Christ. Commit to being pure going forward. That's how this works. But ultimately, Paul says these sins should not be named among you. Why? As is proper among saints. That's what your description is. You know, outside of Christ, you know what your description is? Sinner. 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 Guess who you are in Christ? Saints. Saints. You know, Paul, when he writes his letters, he doesn't say to the sinners in Ephesus. He says to the saints in Ephesus. Why? Because in Christ, they've been made holy. They've been brought out of the world. They've been consecrated. 
And since they have been made such, they are to live in such a manner. Another good reference for that is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. I won't go there for time's sake, but understand that this is God's will for the Christian. Letter B, notice that Paul warns not only of sins concerning a sexual activity, but he warns of sins concerning speech. Concerning speech, as you come to verse 4, he transitions from physical works to verbal works of darkness. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Now, Paul, previously in the last chapter, we looked at verse 29 of chapter 4. He touched on that with the believers. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And here he gives some specific warning of how the believer should not talk. Because how the believer talks is very important too. Ian Hamilton rightly said, it's never enough to abstain from the practice of sin. We are to abstain from the language of sin. So what does he tell them? They should not talk with uh, with filthiness. What's he mean by that? The word filthiness could be translated as shamefulness or obscenity. It refers to behavior that flouts social or moral standards in a negative way. It's talk that's degrading and disgraceful. It's unclean talk. It's speech that is immoral and impure. Isn't that how the unregenerate world around us talks normally? When I was a teenager or young 20s, I worked in duck work for a little bit on a construction site. It was at a hospital, and I was assigned to work with these group of men. They were, you know, we do duck, duck work. That's what gets your air, you know, so you can have AC and heat and all that. And being among that group of men, they curse like sailors. Filthy, filthy mouth. I understand you hear it here and there, but when it's perpetual, it rubs you wrong. If you're a Christian, it rubs you wrong. Their speech was absolutely filthy, degrading, unclean. But it didn't surprise me because that's their nature. The unregenerate, that's their nature, is to be unclean. You can't expect them to be holy. They're unclean. What they need is the gospel. What they need is Christ. But for me, if I had spoken in such a way pervasively, I would have grieved the Spirit of God and thereby caused grief within myself. You see, there are certain ways a Christian ought not to talk. And talking with filthiness is darkness. Notice he continues and he says he includes foolish talk. What's that mean? This word for foolish talk, it's only used one time in the New Testament. It's right here. It simply refers to talk that's characteristic of fools. It's senseless or frivolous talk. It is sometimes referred to as low obscenity, foolish talk that comes from the drunk or the gutter mouth. It has no point except to give air of dirty worldliness. See, it's just senseless. Is our talk really that important to Christ? Is our words really that important to God? Well, this, this, this text is staggering. Listen to what Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36 through 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for what? Every careless word, every senseless word, every foolish word. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friend, words matter. He goes on to say, Paul adds this darkened speech, crude joking. What's meant by crude joking? It, it's coarse jesting in simple terms, but it carries the idea of quickly turning something that is said or done, no matter how innocent it might have been, into that which is obscene or suggestive. 
It is speech that often crosses a line that shouldn't be crossed. You see that in today. Everything that's said is made into some kind of sexual reference. Everything is said is made some kind of a demeaning thing. Now, understand, there's nothing wrong with clean, good humor. It'd be pretty boring if we never laughed. I hope you laugh. If you knew me outside of church, I'm a jokester. I love to laugh. Love to cut up. But in a clean way. Then there's this dirty way. There's this dirty way, this way in which is darkness that is, notice that Paul says it's out of place. With both of these things, the sexual sins shouldn't be named among the saints. And then he goes on to say with the speech, it's out of place for the saints. Believers are to be the light. And the way we speak speaks volumes of our hearts. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How we speak reveals our hearts. It's the window to our hearts. So our speech should not be filthy, but rather it should be clean and pure. Reflecting a heart that is pure in Christ. Now, Paul shows a great contrast here. Great contrast. It says, instead of, instead of speaking in these dark ways, like the unregenerate world around us, what does he say to do? He says, but instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. Thankfulness to God is to be our chief source of joy, encouragement, and excitement. Instead of impurity, it should be, our speech should be filled with praise, something that thanks God. This is what ushers from our lips. Now, now Paul's going to repeat this need for, for being thankful always in verse 20 later on. But why should thanksgiving be what ushers from our lips Instead of filthy talk, here's why, Christian, because there is an infinite surplus of things we should be thankful for. Infinite. Just pause and think about it. Even just what we've read through Ephesians, think about it, Christian. You and Christ are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Chapter 1 and verse 3. We are recipients of God's sovereign electing love given to us before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1 and verse 4. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He has redeemed us through chapter 1. We have been sealed by the eternal Spirit of God. Go beyond this. God is working all things together in the life of the believer for good and His glory. Everything is is under his providence, friend. Romans 8, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God towards you. Time would fail me to give all the reasons that our speech should express thankfulness to God instead of filthiness. But ultimately, here's what it boils down to. We must pay attention to our speech and recognize that it should not be the same as the dark world around us. Psalm 19, 14. David prays this, and I love his prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. His words and his meditation. Lord, help that to be acceptable in your 
sight because that's what Paul's getting at. So he's made clear the sinful works of darkness in a very specific way. Sexual sin and sinful speech are works of darkness, unbecoming of the believer. But this is not all Paul warns of. Notice with me number two this morning. These next two verses that Paul warns of the sobering wrath or the severe wrath against darkness. For those who want to make light of these works of darkness, Paul gives reason why not to make light of them. What does he say in verse 5? For you can be sure of this. This gives him an absolute statement. An absolute statement. It's a definite truth. They can take it to the bank. They can be sure of this. What can they be sure of? He says that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You see, these works of darkness have no place in Christ's kingdom. You notice that he specifically states the same sins he just mentioned that deal with sexual sin. The only difference is he connects something to covetousness. And what does he say? He says that is an idolater. An idolater. I get to think about that. How is being covetous also being an idolater? Because covetousness places the object of worship as yourself or something else. That's where your heart is set. Your heart is set upon your own gratification. Your heart is set upon your own receiving. And if you are so consumed with yourself, your de- with your desires, you have pushed God out of focus as the object of worship, thereby breaking the very first commandment, which God says you'll have no other gods before me. And here's what we see in our world. Millions of people in this world worship the God of sex and material. They're gods in their eyes. And as such people in darkness, they will have no inheritance or entrance into the kingdom of Christ. What exactly is the kingdom of Christ? In short, it is, it's the redemptive rule of Christ that delivers his people from evil, brings about eternal life. His kingdom, understand, is in this world, but it is not of this world. It consists of all the redeemed and the ongoing reign of Christ over all things. And here's what we understand. Believers are right now in the kingdom of Christ awaiting the final consummation of that kingdom when Jesus returns. When he makes all things perfect for eternity. So how does one enter the kingdom of God? Well, here's how. Jesus said to the Pharisee, religious man, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice that seeing aspect. You don't get into the kingdom except through the new birth. What happens when one is born again? What happens when Christ delivers us? Colossians 1.13. Listen to what Paul says about the Colossians' present state. He has delivered us from the domain of what? Darkness. And transferred us to where? The kingdom of his beloved son. That is what you're a citizen of, Christian. The kingdom of God. So do you see what Paul is getting at? Those who live in such works of darkness are not citizens of Christ's kingdom and will have nothing from Christ's kingdom. They have no inheritance of God. So when you look at the world around you and you think, oh, they're just living it up, understand they have, they have nothing. Nothing but momentary pleasure that will only lead them to eternal torment. You see, Paul's description here highlights 
the importance of being in the kingdom of God and living for the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of light. The believer has been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. What does that mean? It means for the Christian, they are no longer that same person who used to be in the darkness and did those things. So if they're no longer that person, they must no longer live as that person. Look with me at a reference here. 1 Corinthians 6 again. Go back to that same chapter we were just in. I I love this text. If you look at verse 9 through verse 11 for a moment, you see a wonderful truth for us. Paul reiterates really uh, one of the same principles we just looked at, but notice. He says to them, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at that list, all of us fall there at some point or another. So how, do I, how, how, how am I not in that? How am I uh, coming to inherit the kingdom of God rather than not inheriting it? Here's how in verse 11. I love verse 11. Look at it. What does it say? Paul says, and such were some of you, past tense, such were some of you, but you are what? You're washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christian, you're not in that dark category anymore. Used to be, but you're not there anymore. Instead, in Christ, you've been washed. Forgiven of your sins. And sanctified, set apart as holy unto the Lord. Justified. Made right with God. And with this in mind, why live for anything other than Christ's kingdom? We are in Christ and Christ is Lord and he's king. He has invaded history with his redemption. He is seated at the right hand of God where he rules and reigns over his kingdom. Putting all enemies under his feet until that final consummation day. To live in the works of darkness is detrimental to the Christian life. For the works of darkness reflect those who have nothing to do with the kingdom of Christ. This is Paul's warning to them. This is how you don't live Christian. Now notice that Paul urges not only their attention to Christ's kingdom, but he urges their attention to God's judgment. God's judgment. Look at verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things. What things? What things? All that he just said, the sinful works of darkness, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You who have been going through Ephesians this whole time, does that sound familiar at all? Chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. Paul describes man's depravity and damnation. You see, this is what awaits all of those who are walking in this darkness. While the world around us seeks to normalize and desensitize us, they have no clue they're headed for damnation. Eternal judgment. They are blind to the reality of their depravity and destruction ahead of them. They don't see it. 
Proverbs 4.19 tells us the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Friend, when you're walking in the dark, it's easy to stumble. Countless times I've got up to go get a drink of water or go to the restroom and I'll stumble over a laundry basket or a toy that the kids left out. And it hurts. Well, why didn't I see it? Because it was dark. You can't see what you can't see. And those in darkness can't see their sin and they can't see their judgment they're headed towards. But notice that Paul, the, Paul, the warning is here for the Christians. Understand this. If, if you're lost and undone, you've never been saved, understand, you ought to be fearful of this. This ought to penetrate your heart because you are under the wrath of a holy God and you will give accountability for every sin you have ever committed, friend. Christ alone is salvation from that. If you're here today and do not know Christ, pay attention to these words. Wrath is what awaits you if you reject Christ. But notice the warning for the Christian here. Paul specifically says to them, let no one deceive you with empty words. This is the point. Christians can be deceived by these things. Perhaps there were some who professed it was fine to engage in sexual immorality and speak with filthy tongues. It seems that there's some in Ephesus who are seeking to normalize and desensitize the Christians with their darkened lifestyles. But what's Paul tell, say about this? He says, don't let them deceive you with empty words. Empty words. Their words have no truth and are only vain. Don't buy into it. Don't buy into what the culture around you is telling you. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Many are doing this very thing. Understand, Christian. It is not okay to engage in sexual immorality. The culture says it's okay. God says it's not. There's no such thing as a homosexual Christian. You can't be homosexual and Christian. It's not possible. It's not okay to live together outside of marriage with your significant other. That is a common thing. It is not okay to do that. The culture says, oh, that's good. You ought to just you know, get some time with them. You don't get to test drive your spouse before you get with them. They're not a vehicle. They're not a vehicle. They're a person with a soul. You must heed these things. It's not okay to do that. It's not, a, it's not an innocent thing to watch pornography. Christian, don't think that that is okay and it's not harming anyone else. It does harm other people. How so? Not only does it harm you, you can get addicted to that junk. It will deteriorate your brain literally and scientifically. They've done studies on this. Not only that, you're enabling those who do it to keep doing it by partaking in it. It's not an innocent thing. All that the godless culture says is not okay with God. Their words are empty. And here's what God's word says. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is going to bring justice upon every single work of darkness. You can be sure of that. This is a fearful truth. So Christian, this text 
it is a warning to the Christians to recognize these works of darkness for what they actually are. The culture in Ephesus tells them these things are okay. Scripture, God says, no, they're not. They are the fruit of depravity, and they lead only to eternal damnation. And the Christian is called to shun such works and instead walk in the light of Christ. Christian, if you are engaged in any of these works of darkness, that's between you and God. I don't know about them. But I call on you today, repent of them. Confess them to God and turn away from living in such a manner. If you have never been saved, understand this. You right now are enslaved to darkness and only Christ can set you free. Only Him. Repent. Look to Christ. His redemption on the cross. His resurrection. He alone is the Savior who can set you free from darkness and bring you into His glorious kingdom of light. Let us take heed to these words this morning. Let's stand as we pray and prepare for a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning and praise you and thank you, Father, for this text. I am thankful that you give us all of your word, that there's nothing sugar-coated within the scriptures. That's not what we need. We need the bare, open truth about sin, about darkness, about what Christ has delivered us from and how we're to live. Lord, I don't know the lives of the people in here. I only know what your text says. It's my prayer that you would take the word of God and minister it to the hearts of your people here today. Cause us, Lord, to be holy and pure and have a firm conviction in our heart not to live in these works of darkness. And if there's one here today who is unsaved, does not know Christ, I pray that you would convict them of their sinfulness, draw them unto Christ, that you'd grant them faith to believe and be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.